All right, well, good morning. Uh, just a quick reminder for those of you maybe are new with us, the way we do kids' ministry is every other week. Um, at a kindergarten through junior high, heads out there for kids' children's church, and the rest of the time they're in here with us on the alternate weeks. So um, we don't have a ton of options for children's ministry, and so we usually have a lot of kids mulling about in and out. All right? So that's one of the reasons why I try to talk so loudly. All right? Um, but that's okay. We want to be a church that uh, loves having kids in the service, right? We're okay with that. Um, my name is Doug. I'm the campus pastor here at East, and it's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. Um, we are continuing in our series. It's a DNA series where we have kind of essentially kind of rebranded the church. Um, new mission, new vision, and we've been walking through these different traits. We at Parkview East are a church that is about pursuing Jesus together in everyday life. That's what our mission is. And as we go out making disciples, as Jesus commands us to do, if you come through Parkview East, and if you are part of this church family, our hope and our prayer is that there will be five distinctives, five traits that you will share, that you will enjoy God's presence, that you will love, live God's story, that you will love God's people, that you will share God's gift. And the last trait we started talking about a little bit last week um, through the missions conference is that you would serve God's world. Those are the five traits. So... Um, John chapter 20, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do. If you don't, you can put your hand up and Craig will come around and give you one, but the words won't be on the screen. And so I'm just going to read a quick verse here, and then we're actually going to spend most of our time in, the, in uh, Romans chapter 10. And so I'm going to read John 20 real quick, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll kind of dive in. This is um, right after the resurrection. I'll start chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we open your word and examine your truth, Father, Lord, I pray that you would use these words, that you would use your word to bring life to a people. Lord, I, I pray that you would allow these words to move your people to action, Father, and that they would not just be words that we know and maybe can recite, Father, but they would be um, words that would sustain us, that would give us life, Father, and move us to be a people who act on the words that we believe. Lord, I pray that right now, that you would take these words which are eternal, which are true, Father, and that you would write them on our heart. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. So in this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus has resurrected and he comes to his disciples who really don't know what's going on, what to expect. They think perhaps the movement that he started has began to wither away. Jesus emerges in the room and he declares to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Two things I want to just point out real quick about this verse is that this idea of being sent gets to the very heart, the very nature, the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. The Christian faith is a missionary faith. Sending is modeled ultimately by the Savior. John chapter 1, verse 14, we understand that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is so beautiful, what is so amazing about the God that we worship is that He came to us. The Father sent the Son. 
In the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, my friends, was the first missionary. He was the first missionary. He came to us. Christian faith is a missionary faith. We, too, like Jesus, was sent. We, too, are sent. We're also sent for what purpose? Ultimately, to serve. Jesus was sent. He tells us himself that he came not to be served, but to serve. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, so the idea of the Christian faith is that Jesus was sent to us ultimately to serve us. And the greatest act of service was that he died on the cross for us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you, like Jesus, you are sent so that you can serve, right? So when we get to this last trait in our DNA series, the words that we choose to articulate this message are intentional, we are sent, we should see ourselves, a disciple should see themselves as somebody who serves the world. This is a tremendous honor that we would see ourselves as stewards of the good news of the gospel message. So then the question comes, we see how Jesus ultimately served us, right, by dying on the cross. So the question comes, how, at Parkview, at Parkview East, how do we serve do we get up on the cross and die? Well, no, that's not what Jesus asked from us. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for us. We don't do that. How do we serve is the question. The way I'm going to divide this message, I just want to give you kind of a big picture of where we're going this week and the next message that I'll teach um, so you can kind of see how they play together. And it's really important. So just kind of as a calendar as you look... This week I'm teaching. Next week, Pastor Schillinger, we're going to do another live feed. Pastor Schillinger will be teaching to all three campuses. It'll be, the focus will be on one church in three different locations. Will be what he will specifically be addressing. And then the following week will be the last week that we use to wrap up this DNA series. Okay? The message I'm teaching today and the message that I will teach on that week, they must be seen together. Okay? Because they're answering fundamentally this question. How do we at Parkview East serve the world? How do we do that? Okay. This morning's message is titled Gospel Proclamation. The way that we serve the world is by proclaiming the gospel. And in two weeks, the message I will teach will be called Gospel Demonstration. The way that we serve the world is by demonstrating the gospel. So, Gospel Proclamation and Gospel demonstration. It's really important. Uh, it's not me just trying to increase church attendance, but it's really important that you take both of these message, messages together, okay? In Luke chapter 24, verse 19, we get this wonderful description of who Jesus was, right? This is the, the story of the road to Emmaus. I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus was described as a prophet, as a man who was mighty in deed and in word before God and all people. He was mighty. The reputation that Jesus had among the world while he lived and walked on the face of the earth was that he was powerful in his deeds, the actions, the social interactions, the relationships, the miracles that Jesus performed were powerful, such that the world had never seen. But it wasn't just his deeds that were really special and powerful. It was also his words. This is how Jesus is remembered, a man who was powerful in deed and world and word before God and all people. Now, it's so important as the church that we follow this pattern, that we too are powerful people who are powerful in deed and in word. It's really important that we hold these commitments, gospel proclamation, word ministry, gospel demonstration, deed ministry together in harmony. Historically, and I would even argue currently, the inability to do just that has resulted in tremendous division within the church. It has hindered, in fact, the mission of the church, the inability to do both of those 
simultaneously. Right? You could go historically and you will see there are times, there are churches, there are denominations and eras where the pendulum swings from one side to the next. And that hinders the mission of the church. It's not a good thing. So, gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration. I want to lay just a couple of um, assertions before we um, get into Romans 10. First thing I want to say just about these practices and how they coexist specifically in the life of the believer. Okay, This is helpful. Tim Chester is really helpful where this is concerned. The first assertion that we have to, as we consider, as we approach this topic, gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration, how they coexist, the first one is that gospel proclamation and demonstration are distinct activities. Okay, These are assumptions that kind of lay the groundwork for this conversation. They are distinct activities. Some refuse to make the distinction between the two, seeing them as one activity. The problem is that usually ends up with one aspect, and it's typically gospel proclamation, that gets lost. Okay? The fruit of social action, though very important, can be undone. Right? It's very important to remember that. We, we can work towards good things in our community. Uh, we can work towards good policy, even. Uh, we can help better circumstances and situations improve life and living conditions, but with changes in offices, changes in culture, all of those things can easily be undone. They can, okay? But where gospel proclamation is concerned, when we speak and proclaim the good news of salvation and of Jesus Christ, what happens when that is received and, and embraced, the change that happens can never be undone, okay? So they're, they're two distinct activities. It's very, very important to remember that. Second assertion is that gospel proclamation is central, okay? The greatest need, the Bible is very clear of all of us, is that we would be reconciled to God, right? Across humanity, this is what really makes us all. I mean, you want to talk about equality. We have equal need. We have an equal problem. And that problem is a separation from a holy, a righteous, a good God. Every one of us has that problem, right? Every one of us. And this reconciliation is only possible when someone receives the good news of the gospel. I think of gospel, you know, demonstration void of gospel proclamation is like sticking a sign in the ground that ultimately points to nowhere, okay? It's, it's not very helpful. It's not very helpful. So gospel proclamation we must see as being central, as being the utmost importance. But the third assertion is... And I'll just be, before I share this one, I'll just be real clear. There's probably some of us in the room who, who even individually, personally, tend to have the pendulum maybe on one side or the other. Like even within this room this morning, some of us would say, no, what's most important, what is central, is gospel proclamation. While there could be others here who say, no, 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 no. To do that is missing the whole point, right? Gospel demonstration is what is of critical importance. So even within this room, within the larger church, within the evangelical world, historically, has been tremendous division, okay? But the third assertion is, is really important. The two, gospel proclamation and gospel demonstration, are inseparable. They are inseparable. You may be tempted to think that because proclaiming the gospel is central, that evangelism should be our only priority. But to do so would be to treat people in isolation of their context, of their circumstances, of their culture. To, to remove people from the social construct of the world, really to operate in ignorance, okay, of who we are and who God made us to be. It's problematic. It doesn't make your gospel proclamation very effective. Mission takes place in and through relationships. Our Proclamation should take place in the context of a life marked by love. Okay? This morning, so those three assertions, we'll come back to them next week because, again, I think they set the table for our conversation. All right? Uh, this morning, our attention is going to be 
on the priority of proclaiming the message that we steward, right? On proclamation, okay? So I would invite you to take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. Just so we're all clear, Romans is a beautiful, beautiful book. It's an, an amazing, amazing explanation of the gospel message. Um, and, you know, many pastors who walk through the... Many don't, honestly, because it's incredibly complex. Uh, but many who do take a tremendous amount of time because it is so beautiful, it is so deep, and it is so complex. You know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he preached on these verses, he did so in about a dozen different messages, okay? And so I'm not going to say everything that I could say about these verses. I'm just going to kind of give myself an out, all right? I would love to, I mean, honestly, have a series just on these you know, a handful of verses right now. But for this morning, we're just going to use them as a launching pad into this conversation. We're going to pull out some truths, some observations from the text. And so Romans 10, I'm going to start in verses 13. And I will read through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Folks, I don't know if I need to remind you, but I will, that words matter. Words matter. Could uh, reference Professor Dumbledore himself from Harry Potter. Words are, says Professor Dumbledore, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Professor Dumbledore, I believe, was on to something. Words are powerful. They matter. Yes, Dumbledore, they can be the source of inexhaustible magic. I do believe so. But words can also be the source of our most inexhaustible, or it's the most inexhaustible source of anger and division, bitterness, bigotry, and hate. I think as tensions grow politically and culturally in our nation, even within our church, rhetoric begins to heat up. And we perhaps um, feel this more now than ever. At least I know I do. James Baldwin, in his article, If Black English Isn't Language, Then Tell Me What Is, says this, language incontestably reveals the speaker. Language, we use words to put out there to show us and show others what, who we truly are, what's really inside of us. But th those words don't just reveal who we are and how we feel about ourselves. They also reveal and communicate how we feel and think about those who are different from us, others. These words we use, they, they reveal who we are, right? And we can try to change who we are by changing our words, even. Sooner enough, as more words that we use, the more evident it becomes clear who we truly are. Words matter. How we define these words matter as well, right? We see this within the national debate over how we talk about gender. Definitions matter. Very important. They have implications. See this within the church, big church in general. The way we define terms such as evangelical, that matters, right? The way we define words such as justice matters, it matters. Oftentimes, I think one of the biggest problems that we have, especially in our church, and again, I'm not speaking Parkview East specifically, but broader evangelicalism within America, is that oftentimes we use different definitions, we use the same words, but they, we define them differently, and it becomes problematic. 
words matter. As we think specifically about how we serve the world, my argument today is that words are necessary. They matter. I don't know if you've ever heard this quote before. Preach the gospel at all times. Anybody know how to finish it? Use words if necessary. Okay? That quote is attributed to St. Francis Assisi, but the quote is problematic for two reasons. First reason is I don't believe St. Francis of Assisi actually said it. There's no documented evidence that those are actually words he said, right? Okay? So that's the first reason why that's not a helpful quote. And sometimes you may have heard people preach on that quote before. It's not something he said, okay? Second reason why it's problematic, okay? Second reason why it's problematic is because it seems to create a useless dichotomy between speech and action, okay? It's simply impossible, folks, to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal, and preaching the gospel is inherently verbal behavior. Words, my friends, matter. As we think about serving this world, we need to think about using words to do it. We need to think about using words to do it. In our passage this morning, perhaps many of you may not be aware of the incredible fine line that I'm trying to walk right now, okay? Many of you hopefully are, okay? I, I think of even just, you know, the tragedy that happened a couple of weeks ago, or sorry, last week at the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, right? And the controversial decision that, that our president made to go in, in, to Pittsburgh, and I don't know if you read up on any of that, but he was greeted there. Many of the protesters who didn't think it was appropriate for, be, for him to be there, they, they were holding up signs, and many of those signs, you know what those signs said? Words matter, okay? Words are incredibly, incredibly important. And, and as we think about the tremendous honor and privilege it is that, that Jesus sees value in you, that he has made you in his image, and that he has commissioned us, me, you, all of us, to go and then take the message that he has entrusted to us and, and, and share that with the world. Folks, apart from words, I don't know how we can do that. Words are necessary. So if you want to just write down what is the big idea of this message this morning, it is that serving the world, faithfulness to our Christian mission requires a commitment to gospel proclamation. If we want to see ourselves as having any chance of serving this world, here at Parkview East, we are going to be committed to proclaiming the gospel message using words. In verse 13, we get this wonderful promise. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the very first chapter of this longest, most systematically reasoned letter, Paul declares his theme in Romans 1. Verse 16, the gospel is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Anyone who has been trained in sharing the Christian faith is no doubt familiar with what is commonly referred to as the Romans road. Verses that are taken from the book of Romans that clearly articulate the glory of God, the problem of man, and the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 3.23, 3.10, 5.12, 6.23, 5.8, 10.9 through 10, and 10.13. In this particular section of the book of Romans, Paul turns his attention specifically to some of the problems that he sees in the Roman church. Remember, the Roman church, the audience, the people he's writing this letter to, are made up of Christians that are both Gentiles and Jews. And towards this section of the book, he's, he's drawing his attention to some of the divisions, some of the problems that are coming about because culturally it's creating some confusion within the church. 
And so ultimately what Paul is trying to establish, he does this earlier in Romans 10, earlier in just a few verses, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on his name. Paul is trying to show that there's no distinction between the Jews, Jewish Christians, and the Gentile Christians. That what's required for both of them is the exact same thing to receive salvation. Calling on the name of the Lord. He says earlier, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal, speaking specifically to his Jewish brothers, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he begins to show more specifically what the problem is with his Israelite kinsmen. They are zealous for God. But in rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, as the very Son of God, they have rejected God himself. It's a problem. That's a problem. What do they need? The exact same thing the Gentiles need, to call on the name of Jesus. It's a terrifying reality that you can have zeal, you can have passion for God and still not know God. For the Gentile, salvation is possible. For the Jew, salvation is possible. There is no distinction, he says, regardless of your background, regardless of your past, what sins may lie in your past, regardless of your current situation, Paul's message is clear. Salvation isn't just possible, it's available to every single one of us. Regardless of what we bring to the table, salvation, Paul says, is available. It's available. Verse 10 just doesn't tell us what is promised, salvation in the name of the Lord, or who it is for, specifically everyone, it makes it really clear of how it is obtained. How do you receive salvation? He says, calling on the name of the Lord. Salvation is promised to all, but they have to call on the name of the Lord. What does a call look like? Well, he tells us in verses 9 through 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does it look like to call? He tells us, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's what it looks like to call on the name of the Lord. Easy enough, right? We all have the same problem. Salvation is the answer to that problem. It's available. It's possible to everyone. All you have to do is call on the name of the Lord. Easy enough. Well, not really. Because the question then comes, how do you get someone to the point where they call on the name of the Lord? Right? Like if you just spend a little bit of time in our community, you would know it is not a popular concept to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess him with your mouth. This is not a popular concept within our culture. So how do you get someone to call on the name of the Lord? Well, it moves on in verses 14 to 15. Look at them with me. And gives us the process by which someone comes to a point where they would call on the name of the Lord. Verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. These two verses, Paul sets forth the conditions that must be met in order to bring them to a point where they would call on the name of the Lord. The solution to this problem is that they hear the word of God. In order to get somebody to a point in their life where they say, I need you, Jesus. I confess you are Lord and Savior. I have a problem. I have a problem. It separates me from you. I need you, Jesus. I confess you as the Lord of my life. To get somebody to that point, Paul says, they first have to hear the word of God. 
The only chance that any one of us has that we will ever be able to know the hope of eternal life is that we would hear the word of the Lord. Think about it. Everyone in this room, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe the gospel, if you have called on the name of the Lord, at some point in your life, at some point in your story, God came near to you by his word. At some point... Somebody, whether it was through a message, it could have been through a colleague, a family member, a friend, it could have been through a book, somebody spoke God's word to you. God came near to you. Everyone, every one of us could think. We could probably stand up right now for hours telling stories about how God brought his word to you, how you first heard the gospel message. You know, for me, I grew up in a, in a family that prioritized going to church. My parents are, are faithful followers of Jesus, and I'm so thankful for it. I grew up going to church, right? I grew up going to Sunday school. I grew up having worship at night with my parents. My dad would open up his Bible, he would read scripture, and we would pray. At the time, it was incredibly awkward, and I didn't want to do it, right? But I'm so thankful for it. I grew up doing those things, okay? But I did not grow up a Christian, okay? Like from the moment I was born, I was born in a Christian home, but I wasn't born with a Christian heart, okay? God saw in his providence at some point to bring the word near to me, to open up the eyes of my heart that I would receive that word, believe the word, and call on the name of the Lord Jesus, there was a man by the name of Dwight Knight. He was a, an amazing preacher, an amazing preacher. And it was the first time, it's the first time I ever heard somebody speak about the word of God. And instantly I could just feel inside of me the, the need to respond to what this man was saying. It wasn't him that was speaking. It wasn't Dwight that was speaking. It was Jesus. It was God. It was his word that was coming near to me. Every single one of us could think if you are a follower of Jesus there was a time when God's word opened up the eyes of your heart were, were awakened and received that good news the only way that we know God is because the word was brought near to us we encountered the truth the beauty the mystery the message of Jesus God brought it near through his word and this gets us to our the final point, this brings us to the, the priority. It shows us the priority, Van, to preach, to proclaim the message. If salvation is possible, if it's available for everyone, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're at, if it's available to all of us, and that all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord, in order to call on the name of the Lord, you believe it in your heart. In order to believe it in your heart, you first have to hear it, in order to hear it, it requires somebody to proclaim it. This gets us to the priority of preaching. Like if you think about all of the things that must take place for somebody to come to faith, saving faith and knowledge of Jesus, think of somebody who you have been praying for. Of all of the things that must take place for, to get them to a place where they call on the name of Jesus, the only thing you can control is that they hear, is that, that you preach. That's all that you can control. You can't control even the words, like when they hear them, what they're doing with them, how it's landing in their heart, how they respond to it. You can't control that. All we can control is are we sending and are we proclaiming? Those are the two things we can control. Mark Dever's book, The Church, The Gospel Made Visible, says that right preaching, proper gospel proclamation is a defining mark of a church. God's people in Scripture, he says, are created by God's revelation. His Spirit accompanies His Word and brings about life. Like throughout Scripture, that's how God operates. That when His Word goes out, life comes with it. Genesis 1, God created life by His Word. He simply spoke and life and creation was formed in 130, living creatures were described as having the breath of life. In Genesis 2, God breathed this same breath into creatures that he had formed in his unique image, male and female, breathed into them. With his word came life. We know that man fell away 
And after these creatures, after male and female that he had formed, brought to life, fell into sin and into rebellion from God, we know that God sustained them and preserved them, his people, by his word. He gave them a promise, a word, that one day he would redeem these people. He wouldn't fail them. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see him being faithful to this word by giving a word to Abram, calling him to leave his land, giving him a promise that he would make for him descendants that would cover the world. And these would be God's people. He spoke a word to make a people. In Exodus 3, we see God's word calls Moses to deliver his people from the hand of Pharaoh. In Exodus 20, as God is in the process of forming these people who are uniquely his, he, he, he has an encounter with Moses. And what does he give Moses? He gives him his word, specifically 10 of them, to form his people. On and on and on throughout Scripture, we see the exact same principle. God's people are created by God's word. Maybe you're familiar with Ezekiel 37, this dramatic picture we have of the power of God's word to produce life. God's people are in exile, depicted as an army, so devastated, only their bones remain. And God commands Ezekiel to prophesy over these dry bones. And what happens as he speaks God's word? The bones come to life. We see this in the New Testament, John 1.14, the eternal Son of God, the Word of God Himself took on flesh and became incarnate. He came near. The Word of God came near to us so that all those who believe in Him would be called children of God, would be given new life. Romans 10.13, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, the consistent message of scripture is that God creates a people and moves them from death to life, from darkness to light, from enemies of God to friends of God. How? By his word. The word of God has the power to rescue our neighbors from death. Your family, your friends, the people that you pray for, the names that are on your prayer list, people who you want to call on the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord has the power to give those people life. How? They have to hear it. But how will they hear if no one is preaching? So if this is true, if this power to produce life in preaching exists, then I would simply ask you, why don't we do it? Fear. Yeah. I think for a lot of us, it is fear. Fear of rejection. Fear, fear of being ridiculed, mocked even. Maybe for some of us, it's fear of losing a job. For some of us, it might be fear of being viewed as a non-intellectual. Fear is definitely one of the reasons. What's the reason for you? Why don't we do it? That's a good one. There was two others that I was thinking of. <laughs> one is... Maybe we don't love other people, right? Maybe, like I think specifically in the context of the passage, Paul is trying to show, listen, Israel needs to call on the name of Jesus. Gentiles need to call on the name of Jesus. Why aren't you proclaiming this word to these people? Because you don't love them. Because they're different from you. Like specifically, in the Church of Rome, that's what was happening. Paul is, in the context, addressing ethnocentrism and racism. Division that is happening within the church. And his remedy is, check it out, preach the good news. If we love people, we will preach the good news. I think that's one that probably all of us could identify on some level with. The second one may be a little trickier. I think it's 
do we really love people? Maybe that's why we aren't preaching the good news. The second one could be, do we really believe the news we're preaching? Amen. Do we really believe the news we're preaching? In his essay, Wendell Berry, uh, Standing by Words, says, in order for a statement to be complete and comprehensible, there are three conditions that are required. First, it must designate the object precisely. Second, this relation of speaker, word, and object must be conventional. The community must know what it is. And third, its speaker must stand by what it says, must believe it, be accountable for it, and be willing to act on it. I think for some of us, there could be the case that we don't preach the good news because if you were to just scratch a little beneath the surface, examine what we say, what we read, what we nod our heads to, and line it up with the way we live our lives, you would see a radical inconsistency. And for some of us, the reason we don't preach the good news is because it's a little beneath the surface, we don't actually believe it. We don't actually believe it. Do we really believe that the power of the word can produce life? Do you really believe it? As we get into some application, I want to think of it on two different levels. The first is, as a church, a commitment to gospel proclamation, as I said at the beginning, will be central to our strategy for serving the world, right? So as we consider how we love this city, okay, that's some popular language that is used among evangelicals today. How do we love this city? Um, a central, what will be central to our strategy to loving this city will be proclaiming the good news. Why? Because we believe that through the proclamation of that good news, new life is possible, and only through the proclamation of that good news is it possible. Okay? So we will, as a church, be committed. Now, the reason some of you may be thinking, what is he even talking about? Like, he's acting like there's some sort of issue at stake here. And the reason why I am making a big deal of it is because I do think many of you, like when we started two years ago, Parkview East, there were many of you that were drawn to being a part of Parkview East, and praise God for it, because you've seen maybe some efforts that we do in demonstrating the gospel on the other side of the equation, right? The necessity to demonstrate this message that we proclaim. Okay? But my argument today is, for those of you who may have historically and maybe are today seeing that as the priority, my argument for you is, again, these things are inseparable. And as a church, as we move forward in serving our community and loving our neighbor, we have to proclaim the gospel. We don't want to stick a sign in the sand that just points. Well, I, honestly, it doesn't, it's, usually when you do that, it's not that it's pointing nowhere. It's that it's pointing to ourselves. Right, that somehow when I stick the sign in the sand, it demonstrates that it's saying, I am the one who you need to go to for help. And that's problematic for a number of reasons. God's word is the source of all life and health. It's what feeds, develops, and preserves a church's understanding of the gospel itself. Plants won't grow if they're not fed. Neither will our church. What should the church eat to grow? The gospel. The gospel. Personally, so that's a church. We will have a commitment. So as anybody who stands behind this music stand, okay? It's a commitment. It's a privilege. And their job is to proclaim the gospel, okay? Personally, many of you would say, well, I'm not a preacher. I think another reason why many of us don't see ourselves as preaching the good news is because I think specifically in today's culture, it seems arrogant to, to assert certain things over other people, to... to, to kind of hide behind truth statements even, seems politically, you know, wrong even, insensitive maybe. And so for some of us, the idea of preaching, they don't, we don't see ourselves as a preacher. We don't have a music stand, such a nice music stand as I do, you know? Like in order for you to preach, do you have to like go to the park and, Doug, can I borrow your music stand? You know what I mean? So for many of us, you don't see yourselves as a preacher. It's important to remember Paul is addressing a church. He's addressing a church, a group of people. And he's telling every single person that you are to preach. 
the good news. And if you do so, your feet are beautiful, he says. Every one of us, personally, we are all stewards of this message of salvation to everyone. Everyone who has received the message is called to preach the message. You don't need a pulpit. You don't need three points. Okay? You don't need an organ. We don't have one, but oh, we do have it today, actually. You don't need an organ. You don't need a microphone. You don't sometimes even need a captive audience. Okay? But you still have an obligation, a responsibility to proclaim the news. So what does it look like at the park? A mom who's there with her kids interacts with other moms who may be there. And as you're interacting and building a conversation, what does it look like to preach the news in that context? What does it look like at Thanksgiving dinner when you're around a table with maybe family and friends? What does it look like when you're at work? And there might even be some legal restrictions on what you can say and how you can say it because words matter, right? What does it look like in that context? What does it look like when you are living next to a neighbor? How do you do it? Well, it's a strategy that's, that's pretty helpful. I think, first of all, is... Let folks know you go to church, okay? Not just like, hey, you know, I go to church, but like find opportunities within a conversation to maybe tell people that you go to a church, right? And I think another thing, and not to like try and get you to say things but about us, but a lot of times when we talk about our church, a lot of times I think it's popular to talk about it in a negative way. But talk about your church in a positive way as something that's important to you, that's valuable to you, that's helpful for you. Let folks know you go to church. Say good things about your church. Let people know that you're a Christian. It means something to you. Your faith means something to you. That, that your faith has really helped you by, you know, as you're helping people navigate problems. Think about how your faith informs the way you make choices and decisions. Right? I think of you know, even an election coming up, right? and, and we have probably people that are voting all over the place in here, and that's fine, okay? but it's probably the most common topic right now. So as you talk about the election and locally what's happening, just even let people know that part of the reason you're thinking through things or with a filter you're running through things is through your faith. It's a, I mean, it's, it's right there okay? in terms of a topic of conversation. So often lead to questions or conversations just bubble up naturally as a result. It's not going to help you to get into conversations like most people about like evolution and philosophy. And, you know, if you're waiting for those kinds of conversations, it's probably not going to happen unless you're in maybe med school, maybe. I don't know. Um, so tonight what I would like, sorry, not tonight. My community group meets tonight. I don't know when your community group meets. But um, one of the things I would like is if you're in a community group, just as I kind of wrap things up, uh, I would encourage you to make it a regular practice to have a, the, the question that you ask, one of the, question, the questions that gets asked from week after week after week, is simply this. Who in your life needs to hear the gospel? If every single one of us was in a group of friends who understood the priority, the necessity to proclaim the good news of Jesus understood the power, that when it happens, what it produces, if everyone of us understood that, believed in it, and then actually lived a life where we helped encourage others to do it, I guarantee you, like in a year, most of us wouldn't be thinking, why don't I share the gospel, right? So if your group, if that context of believers, if it's a regular discipline for you to ask the question, who in your life needs to hear the gospel message? And then share, okay, this person, this person, and this person. Spend some time praying for those people. And another thing I would just challenge you with is to really learn the gospel. To really learn what is the gospel. The Romans road, go through the Romans road. Not so that you can share it, but so you know it. So you know it. So you can articulate these beautiful, wonderful, timeless truths. You know, Colossians 2, verses four, uh, 2 through 4, Paul himself is constantly asking for prayer for two things. One, that he would speak boldly. Two, that he would speak clearly. And if Paul, the writer of Romans, needs prayer on how to speak the message clearly, so do you and I. Okay? If he needs help being bold with this message, come on, we do too. 
All right? Just end with these couple of verses. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Ephesians 6, 18 through 19. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So my question to you today is, who in your life needs to hear the gospel? One question. Two, how can they hear if there's not somebody preaching the gospel. Preach the gospel. Use words. They matter. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, um, I think of just, again, my life and um, the way that you came near to me. The power of your word, Father. Lord, I pray that you would allow each of us to love others well. And as we consider what it means to love those around us, the world around us, Father, I ask that you would help us to see what it is that we can control, that they, those people hear the good news of the gospel and that we would preach it. Father, I ask, also ask that you would help us to believe the message we proclaim there could be things in our life that make it challenging to believe at certain times. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be steadfast in our faith. And understand that our faith, Lord, comes about by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Help us to be a people who proclaim your message, who know it, who believe it, who love the world around them. Father, we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.